Before we start, we want to say a quick thank you to Wharton Fintech's Platinum Sponsor, the Stevens Center for Innovation in Finance. The Stevens Center is a premier research, education, and thought leadership institution in the world for financial technology. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Prajit Nanu, CEO and co-founder of Neum, a global fintech platform that aims to break currency borders by empowering businesses and consumers to send, spend, and receive funds anywhere in the world in a more convenient and transparent way. Based in the company's headquarters in Singapore, Prajit is responsible for expanding the company's geographic reach and establishing Neum as a leading financial technology platform all over the world. He oversees not just Neum's B2B arm of the business, but also its B2C platform, Instagram, powered by Neum's technology. Prajit is also responsible for driving innovation in Neum's key markets, including Australia, Canada, Hong Kong, India, Indonesia, Japan, Malaysia, Singapore, UK, and the US. Prior to co-founding Instagram and eventually Neum, Prajit held leadership positions in various global organizations. He was the global sales director at TMF Group and was the VP of sales and account management at WNS Global Services. Prajit holds a bachelor's in commerce and economics from the University of Mumbai. And now let's listen to a fascinating conversation with Prajit Nanu. Well, Prajit, thank you for joining us on the Wharton Fintech podcast. We're very excited to have you here all the way from Singapore. You know, can we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself and your personal background? Thanks, because thanks for having me. Originally, I'm from India, Bombay, the city of dreams that is called 20 million population, same population as Australia, the continent. So, you know, grew up there, uh, but worked in all parts of uh, the world. I worked in London, I worked. Uh, work in startups before. I think the interesting journey is, and whenever new entrepreneurs come to me, I think the first question I have for them is, how many domains have you booked in your life? That gives me a quick perspective that if you have you really wanted to be an entrepreneur, and think, uh, oh, I think I still run 20 domains, which I would have booked over the course of life, but never found a problem which was exciting enough to kind of uh, drive and build. And that, back in 2013, I had a personal issue of uh, moving money. And I researched and I Googled and stuff like that. And I suddenly realized the fact that, wow, this is such a big problem I can solve. And that's my start of entrepreneur journey, right? Uh, so always wanted to be an entrepreneur, always lacked a big problem which I thought I could solve. And I strongly believe that entrepreneurs need a bit of luck. And my luck was that a challenge happened to me, which I was able to solve and then automatically kind of gave birth to a concept, and which is now over 350 people. That's impressive. How did you meet your co-founders? So I think uh, it's a very interesting story, right? So uh, the challenge I had was I was living in India. A friend of mine was getting married. And he wanted to, he, I was his best friend. He said, like, can you organize his bachelor party? And I needed to send a very small amount. I needed to send about 500 US dollars to Thailand to actually book out a villa. And he refused to take my credit card. He said, uh, I can only send bank transfers, except bank transfers. I said, okay, fine. Uh, you know, the amount of documentation which is required, the bank was charging me like $30 just to send the money, etc. So it was a very problematic process. 
And uh, out of that problematic process, uh, I actually updated one of the social media sites saying that, hey, has anyone done this? Can anyone help me? A friend, I haven't have spoken to him since then, since this uh, incident. And before that, maybe after school. So this was like 50, 10, 15 years after school. He said, listen, I am living in Thailand. I am sending money back to India every month. Why don't you send your money, which is $500 to my India account? And I will send your uh, equivalent Thai bank in the Thai account. So like easy swap. Uh, I said, is it legal? He said, this is such a small money, who cares? So I said, okay, fine, let's do it. Right? Did it. And then I possibly had the worst bachelor holiday ever. Like it was a bachelor trip, uh, uh, you know, and everyone around me was getting drunk. And I was like, sort of, wow, can this scale up, right? Two people exchange money. There was no cost, uh, super simple process. Is it legal? Okay. So Mike is a guy I used to work with in London. Or he was, I did not work with exactly, but uh, he was like in Friday, uh, uh, noon time, London pops up food, right? So uh, he was one of those French friends who would basically come and he was, uh, he's a super talkative compliance guy. And I actually picked up the phone and told him, hey, Mike, I did this. I don't know whether I'm legal, but it's such a small amount that, you know, I can manage it. He said, no, but it's a super interesting way. I also sent money back to the U.S. And he was an American living in London. Uh, I also sent money back to the U.S. And uh, I also have a challenge. It's a great idea. And then, you know, busy careers, I completely forgot about it. And Mike called me like three weeks later. Hey, what happened to the idea? Like, are you doing anything about it? I said, listen, I don't have too much of context, right? I'm happy to research. He said, but let's do it. Let's do it together. So, uh, you know, two guys living in different continents, at a point of time, who have never worked together. In fact, some of our earliest investors uh, who I'd met refused to give us funding, mainly because we were two guys living in two different continents and we had never worked together. And they were like, sort of, guys, we can't fund you, right? He's still with us and it's an amazing story. Yeah, I think uh, you could not put that together if you tried. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Interesting. And so the remittances space has been serviced by multiple large players for right. dozens of years. Why did you think you as a small company could compete with the incumbents? No, actually, it's a great idea. Great question, right? So if you think about it, remittance is probably the second oldest business in the world, right? People migrate, you know, people want to send money, etc. When I look back in 2014, when I was really building the concept of the business, I realized a few things which were in there. One thing which wasn't there is the fact that there was zero transparency. Right? People used to charge whatever they wanted to charge. And funnily, the lower strata you go to of the society means you're set. The smaller the amount you send, the more expensive it gets. How is that fair? Right? So I think that uh, transparency was totally missing. And the second thing which was missing was speed. Right. So when we originally started building the ethos, it was like, hey, we need to make it super transparent. The guy needs to know how much he has to charge upfront. And second, we said that we want to the person should receive the money instant. Right. Like it's how you basically send cash from one person, uh, one market to the other. A focus has to be like super instant. Right. So that's those are the two primary directives we had when we started the company. Today, uh, you know, about 30, 40 percent of our payments actually are received by the beneficiary in less than a minute. So that is, and we're talking millions of payments, a significant chunk of it still is received in less than a minute. And that's constantly going to be a focus of how we can pay, make payments more more uh, instant. And slowly, steadily, what we've seen is the world is, uh, the regulators are pushing branch to become more transparent. 
Uh, and that's a big dent, I think, uh, which you've made in the market. So if you look at Australia, the regulators now said, hey, you need to make it transparent. Europe, again, uh, the regulators are making it transparent. I think uh, it's a combined effort. It's not only as there are a few other operators who are doing this, but uh, collectively, I believe we are taking the, because a migrant who is sending money back home to put food on the table, he should not be suffering to basically ensure the fact that, that exercise is super costly. Makes sense. Tell us about the first few months of the company. How did you build the technology? What was your role? How did you assemble the initial team? Right. And, you know, I keep saying, Miguel, that uh, you, you need to be having some luck as a first-time founder. Right? And it is super, I kind of keep a lot of it to luck because by December end, I was fairly sure, or 2013, I was fairly sure I wanted to do this. So I remember calling Chatford Amit, who used to be a technology guy. I think 3rd or 4th of December, uh, January, under the uh, previous office that I used to work in. And he was kind enough to come and we spent like two hours brainstorming that what the platform should be, etc. And a week later, he started hacking up prototypes, right? If he, because I'm not a programmer, and this is, I think, an interesting input for everyone who is not a programmer themselves. The fact that you need to think about a way where how can you get a, either a programming co-founder or a partner or somebody who believes in you and was ready to kind of do that. So he actually hacked up a prototype in like a week. And then we kind of started taking that and building it more and more. I think uh, FinTech is much more complex than anything else, largely because there's a licensing requirement. So the whole of 2014 was spent in acquiring a license and which we were able to get in Australia. We kept it completely. So as a founder, there are two things which you do. You work on the MVP. Second thing which you do is try to raise capital. Again, raising capital, we had a share, fair share of luck. So, you know, I used to spam some of the leading VC firms, you know, monthly updates, like, oh, this month we've done this, this is our success, blah, 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 blah. And uh, Rocket Internet, which is one of the largest uh, venture capital firms based in Germany, they actually reached out to me saying, hey, interesting idea, we want to know more. And that kind of culminated into a half a million dollars when we were just two guys in a power point. Right? I think that was, that was a very interesting story. And then kind of from there, we kind of built on. One, I think, uh, feedback which I give to a lot of founders, right? Uh, who actually quit their firms and then decide what they want to do. I think that's a pit, right? And you can never recover from that pit because what happens is that when you're in your early stage as a founder, there are a lot of questions you keep asking. Is this the right decision? Should I have done this? You know, Is the idea strong enough? Will I get customers? What if two months there is not even a single transaction? What will I do? You know, there are like so many of these things. And if unless you have an idea which you're executing, you will start doing a self-talk. And there's nothing worse than self-talk. So I actually spent a whole 2014 getting all the ducks in row. And I actually began full-time on this business with me in January 2015. So I actually gave myself a good one year to formulate, build everything. But I was on a full-time job then. But I was spending like weekends and you know holidays, etc. building this. So I think that's a very important feedback I give to founders that don't quit till the time you know what you really want. And for you to have spent late nights and weekends, you really proved to yourself that you're passionate about it. Exactly, exactly. And uh, what I see is a lot of people quit. They start doing something and then they suddenly realize, oh crap, what have I done? And then three months later, they're trying to find a corporate job. It's wastage of your time and productivity. And, and how long did it take you to launch your first live MVP? Yeah, and so we launched, uh, so we launched in uh, March 2015. It was a very interesting experience because before the launch, right, you know, you create all these business plans, which are all spreadsheets. And in the spreadsheet, I said, the first month, we will do transactions worth $5,000. That's it, 
right? So I expected that people will give us $100, $500, those kind of tickets. I expected 10 transactions of $500. Our first transaction on the platform was $5,000. Somebody read an article of us in Tech in Asia, which is a leading Southeast Asia-based startup magazine. And they basically, digital magazine, and they came up and said, oh, interesting product. I keep sending money. Let me try this platform. And we did this. And within the next hour, the money was already on the other side. He said, wow, this is an amazing experience. And then he started referring 10 of his friends to basically get that done for us. And as you can imagine, right, super, super interesting element. And that time, I think it kind of hits and resonates with you saying that, hey, this is an amazing thing for you to do because $5,000 somebody sent just based on a website. The fact that there is a trust element which you have been able to gather. Uh, imagine if you can just extrapolate this to millions of users across. And how would you describe your initial client versus how your clients have evolved? I think uh, our actually business has evolved. So originally what happened was that the focus was super to kind of help consumers, right? Part of our journey as we kind of scaled, we had a very interesting moment. Uh, so 2015, we, started, we had a very interesting moment in 2016, where one of the banks we were working with, they asked us saying that, hey, can you help us send our money to areas? And we said, hey, why not? So that was an interesting pivot we went through from being only consumer to becoming an enterprise payment. Because what we realized is that the world had changed significantly. Like back in 2008-9, I used to wear my consulting hat trying to sell to banks and financial services firms. And everyone said no, right? We don't want to work with fintechs or startups. But that world has started changing in 2016. And from there, I think uh, we've metamorphosed significantly. So one of the things which we do now, our hypothesis has changed now to everyone wants to be a fintech. So what has happened is, if you look at what's happening in the U.S. with Google trying to do deposit accounts, Apple trying to do a credit card, everyone who has a large distribution capacity today wants to be a fintech. But unfortunately, all of these guys cannot be a fintech because licensing, regulatory, agility around compliance, fraud, etc. It's not that's not natural for people large distribution or any e-commerce capability. And that's where somebody like us comes in. So people are plugging on top of us to build digital banks. People are plugging on top of us to pay their virtual influencers. People are plugging on top of us to kind of build like a travel credit card. So there are a lot of these elements which have been built. So over the last five years, not only our customer has changed, our business has evolved significantly. Where from solving an individual's pain point, now we are solving much bigger pain points across multiple markets. So today, as we stand, we are regulated in about 40 markets. Australia, Singapore, Hong Kong, Malaysia, India, Japan, Indonesia, US, Canada, and whole of Europe. So right, if you see, it's a complete global market. Before end of this year, we should have a license in Mexico and Brazil. So really putting our uh, footprint in each of the other core markets. We are probably one of the rare brands in the world which has continent uh, customers across six continents. Again, showing the variety of breadth and scale in what we do. And there are a lot of things only we can do because we are a principal issuer with Visa. So we can issue cards in about 32 markets. Uh, we can collect money from 40, send to 60 plus. So all of that elements put together makes our infrastructure fairly robust. But it's been a great journey, as I, as I said, right? like solving an individual person's pain point of sending money to now helping large brands to pick up internet. And where do you have offices? So offices across 10 countries. Uh, so like, for example, in the US, we have a colleague in Miami kind of uh, running a Latin American operation, but we have offices, in, uh, main offices in Seattle, and we have a skeletal team in the Bay Area as well. Got it, got it. That's super interesting. It's also interesting that you have to manage, 
probably more regulator relationships than any other normal company out there, or particularly startups, right? How, how do you manage this relationship? Absolutely. I think if you look at the company, we are about 350 people, out of which about 170 are tech and product. And the next largest team we have is compliance. Because every market we are, regulatory is, you know, sometimes I make a joke out of it that we are a more regulatory company than actually a, you know, payments company. Because you have to do it, right? Regulators require attention, reporting, all of those elements. And what we've seen also is a big change. Over the years, there was a time, say, in 2000, where regulators could only deal with large enterprises, right? Now, regulators have opened up to saying that we are actually creating a dent in the ecosystem. So basically, now they have learned to kind of deal with people like us. Uh, people like us means we are always trying to see how technology can solve some of the others, right? So, if, for example, uh, in one market, uh, reporting with the regulator was super uh, manual. And we actually went and made a case saying that it's important for you to make a... Stop asking for spreadsheets. Is there a way we can basically make it more automated? And then you have you can analyze the data much better. And because we were doing that in some other markets, we were able to kind of give that concept. And now they are actually moving online. So I think uh, regulators have become much more open. You know, they are uh, happy to have a conversation, kind of uh, support initiatives, especially, you know, some of the ones we work closely with, like MS in Singapore. You know, COVID has impacted the businesses for a lot of brick and mortar remittance companies. And we kind of created like a Shopify equivalent for remittance, uh, where we provide our digital platforms for brick and mortar companies to scale up. And we went with the regulator in the proposition, and they made the introductions. And, you know, that's the way we've seen regulators evolve a lot where they believe that supporting fintechs is very important to keep a very healthy ecosystem. Let's talk a little bit about the fintech landscape as a whole. I mean, traditionally, the U.S. has always been seen as as the center for innovation. That, of course, is not necessarily the case right now, at least always, right? Uh, You have some amazing innovation happening in, in China. You have some amazing innovation happening in Latin America, Brazil, and then expanding elsewhere. I know this is a, a topic that is close to you. I was hoping sure. you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, actually, if you look at it, right, there are some parts which are pushed by the way the world is, right? So somebody, like, for example, if you look at Angola, Angola doesn't know what 2G or 3G is because they immediately saw 5G. Right. So uh, for them, they don't know what's the uh, piece. Like, I think U.S. Uh, payment systems are fairly antiquated. In Asia, basically, it's very common that for free, I can send money to you instantly. Right. Uh, if I want to send money to any colleague in Singapore or any friend, I can actually just get a mobile number. It's like what U.S. works for Venmo or Zelle. Same experience, but I'm actually sending the money to a bank account. So it's not a wallet. It's nothing like that. The money goes and stays away. It's the bank account. So that's there in Singapore, India, you know, and the amount of bandwidth it consumes, like if you look at the UPI model in India, is less than a good morning message on WhatsApp. So technically, it's uh, far superior. And I think on the payment side, uh, I've seen the fact that globally how startups used to work is we looked at what's there in the US and you just copy-paste that model in various markets. Now, uh, you would have realized that PayPal actually announced a QR code in multiple markets uh, very recently, I think yesterday or day before. That's a copy paste from the Asian model, right? That's where QR codes are very famous. And uh, if you see what's happening in China, in Alipay, WeChat, and the whole industry is now completely where people actually get their salaries in their banks and then move the money into these wallets which they can use in multiple places, right? So I think a lot of innovation 
is happening in Asia. And what you see over the next five years is that Asian innovations like the QR code, which is now people are saying, hey, can we do QR code in Europe? Can we do QR code in the US, et cetera? And we're saying that how that will move into various markets. So giving an example there is uh, India, for example. India has always been a debit market, right? So not a lot of Indians have credit cards. So everything was a debit market. So today, if you're a merchant who is uh, taking a debit card, so there is a cost of 2% for you, which is an MDR or the merchant discounted, which calls out. Now, UPI, which is the rail which has been built in India, reduces this from 2% to like a very, very small amount, like five basis point, which is 0.05%. Right now, it's free, right? So suddenly, if you see that extra 2% is going to go back into the pockets of the merchant, which he can basically leverage to kind of improve, automate, and stuff like that. So there's a lot of things which are happening in this part of the world, which will soon get replicated into the multiple areas. And it's not, if you think about it, not a criticism, it's not easy in the US, right? Because uh, US payment systems are built in 1960s and 70s, going back to my Angola example, right? Uh, and trying to modernize these systems, it's not going to be cheap. And the amount of investments you need is incredibly high. So it's a chicken and an egg problem, but US is doing stuff around it. There is a aspect to move real time, move fast. But it can't be taking three days for a local payment in the US, right? So those days are gone. We are doing international payments. So yesterday, I was speaking to a client, Thailand, one of the large banks there, and one of the colleagues in the bank actually tried a payment, which is now powered by us, where she sent money from Thailand to India. And that payment took 18 seconds, right? Cross-border money took 18 seconds. So how is that sending money within the US can take two? That's impressive. And how do you think the pandemic that we're all going through right now, how do you think that's forcing uh, not just the East, but also the West to digitize them and maybe catch up to some of the more digitized markets? I think the amount of innovation which will take place in the next six months will beat the innovation which has happened in the last five years. Because, uh, you know, so words like branchless banking, Right? We have been hearing branchless banking since early 2000. But nobody really did anything. Now, thanks to COVID, you can't actually walk into a branch at all. So people are suddenly realizing that, hey, people are even to bank. They're not going into a branch. So why don't we shut down the branches and see? So I think there are a lot of uh, behaviors which are going to change, uh, forced by COVID. Second behavior which we're seeing is changing is in the remittance side. Uh, so if you look at the lowest strata of people who are sending money, they used to love to stand in a line, queue, and basically uh, send money because it gives them, you know, five years back, I did some research. In Singapore, there's an area called Lucky Plaza where everyone queues up to send money, mostly Filipinos. And I actually spoke to 500 different Filipino, you know, helpers who are sending money back home saying, hey, why do you come there? Why don't you use our mobile app, etc.? And this is more convenient. I meet my friend. I get my food. And, you know, there are a lot of people that are trying to sell their, you know, uh, savories, etc., belonging to Filipinos. They really like it. Now, government's going to clamp down, right? And similarly, like if you look at Filipinos, California, Los Angeles is such a big place where there are a lot of uh, Filipinos who again queue up and basically send that money. And if you look at what COVID's going to do is all the governments across the globe are going to come back and say that at least for the next six months, you can't congregate. You can't come. If there has to be proximity, you have to have distance. So the behavior has changed, saying that, okay, now what's a digital alternative? Right? And trust me, brands have spent millions of dollars trying to make these guys go digital. And they're failing. Right? So COVID is basically leading to that. At the same point of time, I see uh, tremendous challenges on the travel side. 
right? Even when travel opens, I think the next uh, six months to eight months, I don't see people doing pan-Pacific travels. I think the travels will be super regional. People are not going to do so that. Actually, is going to impact a lot of scale volumes. So I think the travel industry is going to be challenged over the next six to twelve months. But uh, other industries like e-commerce, gaming, e-learning, actually on a bull run right now. Because what do you do, right? When you're sitting at home, uh, that's what you basically do. And there are some e-learning companies whose numbers have increased not 10x or 20x, but they're doing like thousand times more than what they were doing in January. Because everyone's at home. So I know a gaming company who, like an e-learning company, who's now started uh, finding, you know, karate coaches and teaching kids karate online. And parents are signing up to it because they want to get their kids, spend their energy, and kind of do something around, right? So the interesting business model. I would have never thought it pops up, but um, and I see that COVID is going to change the way a lot of e-learning businesses will go. And I see digitization being super. Like as I said, right? When I approached brick and mortar remittance companies last year, saying, "Hey, use our platform. Think about going digital." They said, "No, we don't want it." Right now, we don't have the time to respond back to emails and queries and questions. So you see that uh, shift is coming largely to COVID. I believe COVID has been negative, you know, taking so many people's lives, etc. The only green shoot is that some of the behaviors which have not been able to change with money are now changing. Sounds like you're definitely getting some new clients. How about your volumes? Have your volumes been affected? Oh, it has, right? So I think uh, Q1 was phenomenally amazing. Because all the fundamentals were absolutely great till then. I think this quarter we expect some degrowth, largely because of the fact that so as part of travel, we power payments for some of the largest online travel agencies in the world. We actually help some of the airlines reimbursements, you know, all of those elements. That has become so to give you like one of one OTA used to do twenty-five million dollars on our platform on a monthly basis, and they did ten thousand dollars last month, uh, this month. Uh, right, so you can see, but at the same point of time, you know, e-commerce, gaming, e-learning, so those platforms are going. On. I think uh, there will be a good impact on us this quarter, but I think starting Q3, we expect things to kind of normalize because there's a more positive flow of clients coming in, and I think the net net will get better. I think the people, at least the way I look at it, is that if you keep people more in a lockdown, and by Q3, people are just going to ensure that they break the lockdown and start doing that. I think the challenge is going to be discretionary spending. A lot of governments are doing a lot of things to kind of keep uh, discretionary spending up, like the PPP program in the US. There's a program in Singapore which is not for fortitude. They actually have given four billion dollars of loans for SMEs in, in Singapore itself. So there is a lot of work which is happening. But the question is that is this work going to help us till next year or end of Q3? This money runs out and people are like sort of. Like, let me cut down my discretionary spending. Right now, e-commerce is on a high. Right, people are sitting at home and ordering a Bose speaker or you know things like that. Like, I have sat at home and I've said, oh, you know, I need this, I need a camera, I need a laptop, like this, I need. But uh, if things continue to be this, I stop spending. Right? So you have several partnerships with banks right around the world, and then this is a model that we've seen. In fintech, where there's a, there's a new company coming up, and then a bank sees a, a lot of value in them, so they they partner up. But at the same time, uh, that same company might end up being a, a competitor in the future, right? How do you see this, you know, tension and then tussle between fintechs and banks evolving? I think uh, one, it's not easy to work with banks. I think it's always banks are always trying to see what's the value you bring. 
and banks also believe or the olden day banks used to believe that we can do everything ourselves right i think that's a big change which is happening now banks are saying that hey let's not do it ourselves let's work with foreign so giving you the casicon bank example which is one of the largest banks in thailand the way we sold them the product is that payment from thailand to say the uk takes two days today and i just played with my phone and i had a colleague on the other side who was in the uk and he said hey i have received the money right and that's that's the impact where people see the fact that oh wow this is something replicated so banks is a hard sell but once you sell it to the banks they are probably one of the best customers to have i think from a the right point you brought up to is that what's about attention i think it's about being super clear super transparent so we for example don't sign exclusivity with any bank we'll tell them very clearly that hey this is a platform play right so today any platform you buy like you buy a core banking system right does he say that hey i will not sell the core banking system to anybody else that's not the case so uh, it's a complete i will not touch your customers these customers will continue and always be yours so those are some of the kind of support uh, we provide to the banks and we will not touch your customers the customers are completely yours uh, they are for you to manage they are for you to have a look at but a platform is not exclusive and the more people get onto the platform that means the price for you will get further down but uh, so we today work with banks uh, you know from papua new guinea to peru right so we've got really wide spectrum of banks middle east uh, europe uh, asia australia etc but what we've realized that core dna all banks think alike right so though geographically they can be spread banks are very you know very simple their dna is for them banks don't care about the price for them it's the security of data like how encrypted is the data how do you ensure that none of the data goes at any point of time at any level of risk how well is your service what are the other banks who are using it so those are the key things that banks look at now i don't think they look at us as a competition at all they look at us as a uh, so the way we call it like co creating the market i think that's where uh, we look so when we started say 2016 2017 banks used to hide the fact that they work with us like uh, i think the last week mashrek bank which is a large bank in middle east in fact their press release about making payments instant and stuff like that they said hey we partnered with neam to access the markets for instant deposits right so you see that's the mindset change which has been uh, fantastic so neam has had a fantastic journey over the last 5 years what's next how do you envision the road ahead i think uh, primary thing is to provide an exit to our investors right so there is an ipo on cards somewhere in the next 3 years i think pre covid i would have said 2021 2022 i think but post covid i would say till the capital markets get better i think that's something which is a fundamentally important aspect for me it's there in uh, subconscious part of my mind but having said this you know execution for us is happening right as i said in 40 markets today pick up a brand they want to become a bank leverage our platform issue a card collect money offer remittance offer lending all of those things so i think what we want to do is proliferate this into more countries as i said we want to go to mexico we want to go to brazil we want to go to korea we want to different parts in india etc so that's the focus to kind of really proliferate now you know, so we are already there we have clients in six continents go to africa africa is a pretty important uh, region when it comes to payments you know very broken see how we can kind of get in there bigly so the idea is right now to proliferate the platform so all the building work is done right the core technology is ready the stack is ready so but how do you take it to new country customize it make it as local as possible i think that's the future i think today indirectly meaning customers of our customers like adding our bank customers etc we actually cater to over 150 million users right there is no digital bank or there is no one in our same 
comparison, right? Majority of them say, hey, we have 5 million customers, we have 8 million customers, but our customers, customers today are over 150 million. Fantastic, fantastic. We do have uh, quite a few listeners who are either operators or also aspiring founders, entrepreneurs. You have obviously mentioned several lessons along our conversation, but could you perhaps share some reflections of entrepreneurship that you've learned over the last few years? One, I think it's your personality as well. Being a founder is a very lonely journey. Every time you have to be seen as a smiling, happy-go-lucky guy. You can't be the sad, brooding variety because uh, as soon as you become a sad, brooding variety being a startup founder, People start wondering, oh, is there a problem with the company? Is there a compliance issue? Is the funding running out? Is there no investors coming? So you have to always, even at the worst situation, you have to be smiling and basically be open and approachable and stuff like that. It's a very lonely job. You have to be absolutely ready for it. The second uh, formula for me has always been the fact that ensure that you're the most hardworking guy in the room, right? So uh, as founders, we should always hire people smarter than us. But there shouldn't be anyone who should say that, hey, you know, you can't be packing up and going at, at 5 when you expect everyone else to work at 10 p.m., right? So that DNA needs to be that you need to be the, you know, we are five years in. I would still say that nobody puts in as much hours as I do or, uh, you know, on a weekly basis, right? I don't know last when I took a holiday. I don't know last when I did not open my laptop over a weekend and things like that. So still considered the most hardworking guy. Um, in the Third is, you know, do not lose your purpose or the vision of why you started the business, right? Because uh, the journey is a very difficult journey, right? Uh, and, you know, at the back of it, people read, oh, these guys have raised $100 million. These guys put money in their business. Amazing guys. But what they don't know is the amount of investors who have rejected us. You know, Series A, we were about to get the money, but it was slightly delayed and I had to actually put my own money to pay salaries. You know, these are war stories that people don't know. But so never lose your purpose or vision of why you set this up because it's very loneliness and because of how treacherous this is certainly when you lose focus and you start looking at around and you're like sort of oh uh, i don't want to do this right and i think that's uh, what's something you need to really avoid so be really sure why you do it but if you have an intent to do it do it because uh, trust me no career work experience can replicate my last five years this has possibly been the best ride of my life i've enjoyed every bit uh, and, you know, I keep telling people that, oh, next time I do a startup, I'll do this differently, I'll do that differently, etc. 99% I may do all the same mistakes which I did with this one. But, you know, it's been an amazing journey. Uh, you kind of learn a lot about yourselves. Uh, your personality changes uh, in the positive direction. You know, things like that. So, back in my corporate career, I was somebody extremely poor at taking feedback. I've done a 360-degree U-turn now where I'm actually able to absorb feedback because... I feel that even the smallest and smallest of feedback can be useful. Back in my corporate career, I had a massive ego because I was a top-notch performing sales guy. I had like a big argument with the candidate of ours. Uh, you know, I actually called up the candidate a week later saying that, sorry, I was an ass. I shouldn't have spoken to you like that. I really apologize and I would really want you to come and work with us. He's one of our top 10 best team members ever. Right? So uh, I couldn't see myself. Like if it was a corporate job, I said, his loss. I don't, I don't want to do it. So personality-wise also you change. So I'm saying that this is the best ride of your life. So don't miss it. Don't miss it for any, at any cost. Thank you for that. Prajit, before we go, we like to ask uh, one question. It's about your personal hobbies. Tell us a little bit about your activities, your time outside right. of work. 
So uh, sports, uh, I'm a massive sports fan. Like back in college, I used to play like five sports just to not attend the college. Right. So if you uh, like back in if you play if you play enough sports, you basically get the marks as well as the attendance for not attending college. So you know, uh, like chess. Uh, so indoor sports from chess and badminton to outdoor sports from like tennis, uh, football, or soccer. The American version. There's an Indian sport called cricket. Play a lot of that. You know, and sports is I think uh, a very important element of my life. Right. You can actually get rid of a lot of your frustration on sports. Right. And I think that's something which I'm missing thanks to COVID. But uh, and sports is something which is super amazing, right? As a founder, I was giving you an interesting experience back in 2014 when the business was just going through. I had a dark patch, saying that you know let, I'm not enjoying it. Let me just shut it down. I went for a like a 10 mile run, came back and said that what am I doing? Like you know the, everything had changed, right? My whole mindset had changed from being depressed about saying hey this is not going anywhere. To suddenly feeling euphoric about it, saying that wow, you know, what, what am I doing? This is the, one of the best opportunities of my life. So sports is what makes me. You know, I keep telling people that if you don't learn to play one sport, because it's a it's a great level. You know, if, even if you want to play esports, play it. But passion, energy, team spirit, learning to work with others all comes to sport. Great. Well, Prajit, thank you again for joining us, for you know, educating us on, on so many topics, and then telling us about the outstanding growth of uh, Neum. Uh, we you know, look forward to staying in touch and hopefully once uh, all these restrictions are lifted, you can visit us on campus. Thanks. Thanks, Miguel. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.